Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I am Matt Levin, data journalist with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, tenants' rights and evictions. There's some bills that are floating through the legislature that Liam and I are going to talk about that may affect you if you are a renter or a landlord. All of those things, yeah. And of course, we're talking about this in the context of what could be or, or most likely will be a tremendous fight um, on the ballot in November about expanding rent control across the state. And today as our guest, we have Fernando Nadal, who is an organizer for Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment. Got my prepositions right on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, who is also uh, evicted from his property um, a couple years back. In Sacramento. In yeah. Sacramento. And uh, this is also one of the groups that is uh, most prominent in uh, in uh, in fighting for the expansion of rent control, um, uh, not only statewide, but also they're, they're working in Sacramento, too. A quick reminder... In a couple of weeks, something pretty big is happening. Selection day. Mm-hmm. Primary day. Do you wear the sticker? Of course, man. Yeah, of course you wear you, the sticker. You know, I wear the sticker. There's even, no way you wouldn't wear the sticker. Even though I vote by mail literally on the first day I get my ballot, I still try to go find some place. Because I'm usually at reporting, talking to voters, you know, a thing that reporters do on election day. Mm-hmm. And I make sure to go in and grab my sticker because, man, it's important. I feel like you would get a special edition sticker that would be like... I voted, I know you didn't. <laughs> that sounds like the Liam Dillon, I voted sticker. No, because I'm supportive of everyone voting. I think everyone should vote. Have a say in your democracy. Controversial stand, Liam. things around you, you know, you should try to influence them. So this is your PSA. This is the last podcast we're going to be doing before the election. The people who get voted to office up here matters for housing policy. That's, That's why you're listening to this. So please vote. Please vote. Um, and if you're curious about your decision... Uh, the podcast we did two weeks ago exactly. goes through each of the gubernatorial candidates' housing plans. Um, I did a piece uh, uh, for the LA Times. Great piece. Going through them, all of them in, d- in even more detail. And, and Matt, you folks did a, a really good voter guide, not just on housing, uh, but on, on, a, on every topic that you might care about with respect to your next governor. Yes, please, please consult it um, before voting if you have the time. We will also be going through a handful of bills that have to clear a key legislative hurdle. Uh, that's coming up. But before we get to that, Liam. Our avocado of the fortnight. Our look into the absurd or whimsical or potentially humorous um, stories that highlight California's housing crisis. And this fortnight, um, we actually head to a neighborhood that I used to live in. What neighborhood is that, Matt? <laughs> that is... <laughs> The Silver Lake neighborhood, um, east of Los Angeles. Okay, and there's a there's a there's a gas station there. It's a gas station and also a, an auto repair shop. I think it's like a whole full service gas related car outfit. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it's on Silver Lake Boulevard. I used to pass it on my way to Trader Joe's, with, who should totally sponsor this podcast. Now that we're giving them all this free publicity. Um, and I never quite really noticed it. I, I, when I saw these stories about it that popped up in the news recently, I was like, oh, I recognize that. But it wasn't something that kind of struck me as, look at that visible monument to something. Well, but it might or should have potentially because it might be a historic gas station, Matt. Did you, did you, did you, and you didn't smell the history every time you drove past? <laughs> I did not, Liam. I did not. Huh. Well, uh, had you smelled the history, you may be aware that this gas station, for uh, one reason or another, um, might be a historic monument in in Los Angeles. And if it is, that would make it really difficult to build um, 
a three-story mixed-use structure on the property now uh, that a developer who owns it would like to do. Um, I, and I made a mistake. Yes, you did. I made a mistake. I said, man, this is, I put this on Twitter. I said, uh, California is the only place I could think of where they would uh, designate a gas station as a historical monument. The East Coast disdain inherent in your tone right there, that is exactly the tone that was in that tweet. And what was what was Twitter's reaction to that, Liam? <laughs> Boy, was I wrong. <laughs> Little did I know, up and down the United States, from sea to shining sea, <laughs> there are historical gas stations. For instance, I learned, thanks to Twitter, uh, that in, in Georgia, there's some Jimmy Carter-related historic gas station. Oh, okay. Which I, you know, okay. Um, I learned that in Boston, uh, around Boston, there was a big fight over whether the artist Edward Hopper had painted a dilapidated gas station. Um, I learned also someone sent me a wonderful picture of one of the original Shell stations, Shell Gas, which was an actual shell. Like a like a literal shell, like that like it looked like a big 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 clam, you know. Mm-hmm. And that, in my opinion, yeah, I mean that looked pretty cool. Could could make that one historic. Um, but I I, I was surprised, uh, let's say, at the level of historicity in gas stations across. <laughs> Look the US. at you! It was a fun little. I enjoyed watching your Twitter feed blow up. Yeah, I, I was on defense rush the afternoon. Yes, for sure. Yes. Um. So that was our avocado of the fortnight. Let us move to our number of the week. And our number of the week this week is – go ahead. It is $150,000 Which this fortnight. This uh, – yes, this fortnight, it's $150,000. Not a huge sum of money, um, depending on the context. Why don't you give us that context? So it's not a huge sum of money, but it's an important sum of money. And if we do nothing else on the California Housing Crisis podcast, we explain arcane and strange legislative rules that affect things. Yes. Right? So this $150,000 is, in fact, a very important number for the arcane and strange legislative rules that we have here in Sacramento. And that's because that's the number that triggers any bill that costs more than that amount, $150,000, has to go to this committee on both sides uh, of the legislature, the Senate and the House, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Senate and the Assembly, called the Appropriations Committee, yes. the Fiscal Committee. And this is the committee where bills live or die without a trace. And the reason we have selected this number this week is because it is suspense file week. Yeah, so another arcane term. Um, so suspense file is where these bills uh, that, the, that come up in the Appropriations Committee are sent to perhaps uh, debate uh, under the cloak of darkness um, whether these things live or die. And what happens, uh, and it happens on the, will be happening on the Friday before Memorial Day, is uh, lawmakers on, on, on both sides, uh, the head of the, these committees, will get up and will announce um, which bills made it out of this committee mm-hmm. and which bills did not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's no debate over it. The bills just sort of emerge or they die very quietly, and there's no debate, no discussion. Um, it uh, is a and- very convenient way to kill high-profile, controversial bills that maybe leadership does not really want to deal with. Without taking a vote on it. Exactly. Right? So, um, and it's it's crazy. I mean, the first time I saw this, I've been you know here you know a little more than two years now. The first time I saw this, I was like, I can't believe this thing actually exists. Yeah. It's like literally like, a, like if, imagine an auctioneer. Right. And that's what the head of the Appropriations Committee does to auctioneer out uh, which bills make it or which which bills don't. It's 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 I've never seen anything like it in my life. And uh, it also makes the chairs of these committees incredibly powerful, arguably some of the most 
one of the more powerful positions outside official leadership positions in each chamber. Um, in the Assembly, it's uh, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And in the Senate, it's Senator Ricardo Laura of uh, Laura, sorry, of uh, the Del L.A. Lawrence. area. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, there are a few um, key housing bills that have to get through uh, appropriations this week. So we will know whether they pass this key legislative hurdle on Friday. Let's go through probably... Um, let's go through a handful of them, and let's start with the highest profile, which, again, will be a bill from Senator Weiner. Liam? Yes, this is uh, Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco, who we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about uh, on this podcast. Um, so he has Senate Bill 828. This is um, not the one that died earlier this year. That was 827 on increasing <laughs> density around uh, around transit. This is 828, which involves a zoning more land for housing than is currently outlined in the state sort of uh, uh, rather Byzantine um, housing goal process, right? Yes. And so, essentially, we're not going to talk about this a lot. Um, but what it would do is force cities and counties to zone a lot more land for housing than they do now, uh, which then, in, in uh, presumably, would lead to uh, more housing development. Exactly, and crucially, it would also hold cities accountable for missing their past housing production goals. By forcing them then to zone land uh, to make up for the fact that that not not enough housing was built to match what they were uh, what they were what was outlined for them exactly so that's one that has to get through Senator Ricardo Ricardo Lara's committee mm-hmm. this Friday um, let's talk about a couple other ones uh, Assembly Member Chu's bill. Yes. Another frequently referenced legislator on the podcast. Right. Assemblyman David Chu, also from San Francisco, has uh, AB 2923. And this is uh, what I've been calling sort of a, a baby um, uh, SBA 27. Yeah. Because it would involve a higher densities for projects on BART owned land yep. near, in, in the Bay Area near BART stops. Um, and, and the interesting thing about this is, um, uh, is it would override a local zoning of local governments don't comply. And so I don't know if I've seen um, a measure like this um, that that w- has been successful in the past that would give uh, land use power, more land use power to uh, to an entity other than a city or county. Yeah. This bill would do that. Yep. Um, and it has been referred by others as well as a mini 827, 827 Light, 827 yeah. BART. Mm-hmm. Not just you, Liam. Let's move to SB 831, which involves... ADU slash granny flats slash what's the term that you are you are now pushing? Yeah, so these are these backyard units, and you're you know another second thing on your single family property, mm-hmm. right? Um, I like the word casita. I think it's very California, you know. And so I don't like ADU. I think that's dumb. I don't like uh, backyard granny flat thing. I think casita is a perfect uh, perfect thing, and I hope that you all use it now. Maybe you could sneak that into the bill language. You know, maybe. I hope you're listening. Staffers. Senator Bob Wykowski of Fremont, Mm -hmm. if you're listening, Casita. (laughs) Um, God, wouldn't it be dope if that actually made it it in there? That would be the best. Oh, man. Impact, baby. Impact. So, uh, uh, yeah, two years ago, uh, Wykowski, Senator Wykowski, and uh, Richard Bloom of the L.A. area, Santa Monica, uh, passed uh, b- both had bills that made it easier for uh, people to build these and sort of yes. limit, capped fees and limited what local governments could, could say about permitting times um, uh, uh, to, to help facilitate the, these things being built. Um, and these uh, Wykowski's bill now, 831, goes even further. further yeah. uh, you know, strict two-month timeline for a city to approve one of these. 
use, limit some parking requirements, again, caps more fees. And so more sort of cramming this stuff down um, uh, to allow for uh, more of these things to get built. Yes. And the the early returns on last year's... Two years ago, yes. Yeah, sorry, two years ago's yeah, uh-huh, bill uh-huh. Um, have been fairly positive. There seems to have been a response in some cities where people are building more, I'm not going to use your term, building more ADUs. Um, yes. Yeah. The, the, the Casita revolution is here. Okay. Uh, <laughs> finally, um, Assemblymember Chu's uh, bill trying to resuscitate redevelopment in one form or another will also have to go through appropriations That's this right. week. Yeah. Again, the, the chances of that bill actually becoming law, considering how difficult it will be to get through the legislature as well as uh, Governor Jerry Brown's historical attitude towards redevelopment, which we've covered on a previous podcast, it's going to be tough. Um, but that's another bill you can pay attention to. Yeah, I think it's for this for that one in particular. It's more interesting to see how long they want to keep this around to kind of continue discussion or not. Exactly. Um, and, and, and so you know, if it looks like that's over and they want to do other things, then we'll likely see that one die on Friday. Let's talk about um, our main topic for the day, which is tenants' rights and evictions here in California. So, uh, you know, the big fight, of course, is over uh, over expanding rent control, which would uh, uh, certainly relates to uh, or is d- d- directed by the repeal, potential repeal of Costa-Hawkins, which is the the uh, legislation that passed in 1995 that, that limits the expansion of rent control um, across the state, right? And so there was uh, a big bill from Assemblyman Bloom um, earlier this year, or in fact, it was introduced last year, got its first hearing this year, and after a lengthy, uh, well-involved, um, dramatic uh, hearing, uh, it uh, died. Right? Yeah, and, and we have a podcast uh, immediately after that hearing, that talk, detailing that, that talks about that, and yes. so what led what that led then led to is a kicking up of the campaign to uh, put that issue on the ballot in November, and we're likely almost certainly going to see that um, on the November. It hasn't officially qualified yet, but everyone believes that it that it will. Yeah. So um, with that sort of issue uh, gone for now, but on the table and kind of casting a, a specter over everything uh, that we talk about in terms of tenant issues this year, uh, there are uh, you know a few other bills that that don't go as far. Um, as addressing uh, sort of tenant issues or, or, or rent control as um, or evictions as the repeal of Costa Hawkins might, but are still interesting. And so you brought up the the, the Rob Bonta bill, um, a representative from uh, uh, Alameda. Um, tell us about what it would do. AB 2925. Uh, it would basically say landlords, um, you have to disclose a reason that you're kicking somebody out of their apartment. Uh Currently, uh, in California law, unless you're in one of 17 jurisdictions that do have this thing called a just cause ordinance, which specify what reasons a landlord can evict someone from their property, um, landlords don't have to have a reason. Technically, they can just not kind of like you um, and evict you from the the apartment. They have to give you notice. And there's a bunch of other kind of regulatory procedures that they have to follow, but they technically do not have to have a specific reason. There's some reasons that they can't evict you for. Like discrimination reasons and things like that. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Or if you complained about, um, you know, something was wrong in your apartment right, and it's right. some type of form of retaliation. Right. That, that they can't do. Um, but technically, they don't have to disclose what exactly the precise reason is that they want you out. Um, so this bill would say, no, 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 landlords, um, even if you're not in a jurisdiction that already has a just cause ordinance in place, you have to disclose some reason in the eviction notice. Right. Um, it would also 
I think possibly even more importantly, statewide prohibit a few things that could trigger eviction. And I don't know if you want to go into what those are specifically, but um, I, I can if you want. Sure. Okay, keep going. You're sure. Great. You're doing well. All right. <laughs> Thanks. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if your property is being foreclosed on, um, that is that is often a reason that people get thrown out of their apartments. This bill would say, no, no, no. Um, you can't be evicted because the property is being foreclosed on. If the property is being sold to a, a another landlord or some other entity, that also could not be a reason for eviction. Um, and then there, uh, if you're on a fixed term lease and that expires, that could also not be um, just cause for eviction. And on that one, I'm still confused of the mechanics of how that works exactly um, and how this bill would treat that. Right. So um, don't ask me any more questions about that. <laughs> um, there's other smarter people that can that can talk about that. Go yeah, ahead. So the proponents of this will say, like, look, like, like you have to have a, a reason to evict somebody anyway, uh, as long as it's not, you know, and it can't, as long as it's not discriminatory or retaliatory, you have to have a reason to, to to do it. And so all this is, landlords, is just putting and adding another line to the piece of paper and saying what that reason is, and then you're good to go. You could do what you want. And so, what is the opponent's response to to that one? So the opponents, who uh, unsurprisingly are led by the California Apartment Association, which is the organization of landlords um, across the state. Um, they'll say this is going to make for a, make a more cumbersome eviction process um, and ultimately will add in increased rents because landlords are going to find it more difficult to get people out of their apartments. Um, that's that's the fundamental argument against against this bill. And there, it, I think the landlords do have some... There, there's some very credible situations that they've described. Let's say you you suspect a individual of illegal activity on, on your property, right? Um, and you have other tenants who have witnessed that illegal activity. Um, without just cause, you could, it is much easier to get that person out of the apartment, right? Right, right. With just cause, if you do end up going to court, you're going to have to get other tenants to testify. Or... Exactly. Right. Exactly. Which can be a very difficult thing to do, especially if they feel threatened or, you know, there's other complications there. Right. Um, there's also the argument, too, with just cause that just cause doesn't really mean anything in the absence of rent control. Exactly. So, so talk about that. Sure. Um, if the other thing I could do if I'm a landlord is I could just jack up the rent. Right. So if, if I don't want you there, that is why just cause ordinances, the local ones are typically in places in California that have rent control because mm-hmm. it is a protection against that very behavior. Right. Um, so there is just cause in Los Angeles, in Oakland, in San Francisco. It's also in San Diego where there isn't huh. um, uh, where there aren't rent control protections. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, Liam's exactly right. That's that's always a, an option. Just to give more context to the bill. It'll probably be up for an assembly uh, floor vote next week. Right. So this bill is, doesn't have to deal with the Appropriations Committee. Um, it's on the assembly floor. Um, it's interesting. Uh, this is probably the, the of the tenant bills left, the biggest one. Yes. Um, and so we'll see. I mean, you know, we haven't really talked about this, but tenant bills don't particularly do well here at the Capitol. I think it's for a variety of reasons. Um and uh, the apartment lobby strong, um, you know, I think I think without um, sort of Costa Hawkins sort of being a, as kind of a definitive word or definitive statement um, on this. Uh, and so 
you know, that in the absence of that, it, it's hard. Everything that you're kind of doing is, is a lot of it's around the margins yes. um, in, in a lot of ways. And so and I think that's that even though this would be certainly a big deal in a in a post Costa Hawkins regime, I think right now, again, because of the particularly because of the the, the rent increase sort of loophole, if you will, uh, with respect to this, um, this can only really go so far in dealing with some of the concerns of tenants. So have. do you think that's good or bad for the bill? Well, uh, I think uh, I think it's probably bad because you haven't, you know, the 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 emphasis of putting your throwing your weight to to try to overcome uh, ferocious opposition from um, you know important interests. Um, you know, why do that if you're not going to make a gigantic difference? Yeah, do you know I, what I mean, yeah, so, I think that also gets the question of why is the opposition so ferocious if that loophole still exists, right? right and right. I don't have a good answer for that. Well, I think it's you know it's sort of the the uh, the no uh, Campbell's those under the tent sort of stuff, right? If you if the you what. You never heard of this? Camels under the tent. The camel's nose under the tent. So the camel's nose goes under the tent, and then the camel's like an Old Testament thing that Steinberg would know that I'm that I'm out of the loop on. It could be so the camel right has a nose right. A uh, long long. I would assume so. Camel. Uh The camel gets his nose under the tent, and then it's like, ha, I'm in the tent now. And so then that's the beginning of the erosion of. um, Could it be more accessible if the camel, let's say, was on a slope that might be a tad slippery? Would that be a yes? A slippery slope, mm. sliding the camel down to put its nose under the tent. Perfect. And then the camel overturns the whole tent. Where were we? We were the 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 chances that this bill gets through. Yeah. That, so yeah. um, you know, there are bills like this in the past um that that have not gotten through, and in fact, I'm even a little bit surprised it made it through the committee process even to get to the floor because then you have a vote where you're going to have to uh you know have potentially if they actually put it up for a vote have every you know every legislator be on the record about doing something that would a- either a uh, upset alienate the, tenants the or, apartment lobby or exactly. b alienate tenants um and you know usually these bills are strangled in committee so that that those votes don't actually happen. That's right. Um, and I believe the last version of a just cause bill that was like this was floated in the midst of the foreclosure crisis, actually. So a little mm-hmm. different kind of um, policy arena for it. Right. Um, but it didn't get out of committee. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about AB 2364, Assemblymember Bloom's bill dealing with um, the Ellis Act. So the Ellis Act uh, for uh, something than Jim Wood, especially. I was I was <laughs> waiting for you whether you were going to do that or not. Uh, that's a it's an inside joke of which there are too many uh, 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 that we do on this this podcast. But uh, so the <laughs> the Ellis Act is the uh, like Costa Hawkins sort of landmark um, you know renter legislation that that tenant groups really don't like. Um, this is the one that governs the conversion of uh, of rent controlled apartments and, and, and apartments to condominiums. And so uh, this allows for that to happen. The the Taking sort of taking, uh, you're allowed to take rent control apartments offline if you are converting them to for sale units. And of course, the the Jim Wood joke is that he did not know what this was during the uh, debate on Costa Hawkins. Yes. So, and it's important. A, a yeah. previous avocado yeah. of the Fortnite. Indeed. And so, um, uh, so. Ellis Act, like Costa Hawkins, is frequently criticized, as we said, um, uh, by tenant groups as as sort of uh, making it too easy for uh, landlords to um, destroy uh, rent-controlled apartments. And so what Bloom's bill does is it it makes it harder to do that. And so um, you would have to have, uh, you know, the the condos, they would have to be, these uh, units would have to be condos for five years before they could be turned back into rentals. Mm -hmm. Um, 
uh, under the Bloom Bill, uh, increases penalties for those who violate the uh, the Ellis Act, and then sets a, a new sort of timeline for that when that clock starts ticking on the on the withdrawal date uh, from from uh, from tenancy. And so these are all sort of changes around the Ellis Act to kind of make it harder to 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 to, to destroy rent control apartments, um, or rather destroys uh, definitely too strong a word convert rent control. Yeah, apartments. convert. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, also, like Bonta's bill is on the floor. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know when it might be taken up? I don't. We have one other bill left uh, that we're going to talk about, which is in and uh, oh, in that the one's on. Committee. That's on suspense. It is indeed. Oh, all um, right. And this is AB twenty three forty three from Assemblymember Chu. What what Chu's bill does a uh, twenty three AB twenty three forty three extends the timeline before people can get evicted, including responding to eviction notices, and so uh, it adds days to that process. So that you know, there's a complaint that I've heard from proponents that people can be served with an eviction notice on a Friday, and then they have to respond by a Monday, not giving mm-hmm. them much time to you know sort of figure out, uh, find an attorney, or do some research during a business day, etc. And so this this would extend extend that um, extend that timeline. Um, and so, um, you know, that, and this isn't just that. There, there are a number of other things that, that the bill would, would do with, re- with respect to giving um, renters more time to, to respond to uh, eviction filings. Yes. And I think it's, it's also important to mention here that there are a variety of methods that landlords could potentially employ to put pressure on tenants to leave that don't involve a formal eviction process, right? Like we mentioned earlier, you could just raise the rent if you're not in a rent-controlled unit. Right. But, you know, you could offer some type of off the books kind of settlement payment where you're like, right. we'll give you this if you're gone and then I can raise the rents, let's say if it's a rent controlled unit. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other ways or you can neglect re- repairs, for example, right? right. To quickly what opponents um, uh, of the bill sure. say, which is basically they say, look, the eviction process is already too complicated and cumbersome. Some of their arguments that you have for the other bills, they say even non-payment of rent could take two months to get somebody out. And That's so right. Just adding more days and more time is not a, not a good idea, they would argue. That's right. And, and again, we probably should should have prefaced the whole the whole show with this, but like you know, we talk a lot about the housing crisis, and it's important to um, to understand and keep in context that the housing crisis affects different people at different income levels, at different statuses, in different ways. And so, uh, it is tough though to argue that those who are uh, most affected in terms of most impact to their lives um, are those at the bottom uh, of the rung, who are often tenants and often um, uh, don't you know don't have uh, property. Yeah. And so. Um, you know, and so, you know, issues of increasing housing supply or, or spending more money for low income development are all, are all things that we talk about frequently. But some of these tenant rights issues are is, are, are bills that come up um, and, and frequently um, lose uh, at, uh, you know, at the Capitol. But are also things that some of those groups would argue would be beneficial for those um, at kind of the lowest rungs of our uh, of our of our income level. In the state. Exactly. And eviction specifically, I think, is. As an example of what you're talking about, um, both a symptom of the housing struggle that low-income individuals face in California, but also can be its own cause of other social ills, right? So totally, yeah. So totally. literally being, you know, displaced from your house can um, result in a whole host of other problems for you and your family. And I think that's um, been very articulately written about um, and spoken about, actually, by Matthew Desmond, um, a sociologist at Princeton. He's at Princeton now, yeah. Yeah, he's at Princeton now. Um, In his book, Evicted, 
Yeah. Um, it was a wonderful book. I mean, I, if I if I had to recommend uh, one book that you should read to understand um, how housing struggles, particularly in, in that area, um, uh, are affecting people, I think it's just a remarkable job of scholarship and also of journalism, too. Yes. Uh, he, he embedded in Milwaukee uh, for years um, with, with people um, sort of struggling with eviction, struggling with um, being able to keep up with their rent. And it's a remarkable story um, that show, shows and reveals things um, uh, in, in ways I think would be um, new and interesting to every every reader and everyone who's interested in this area. Um, he also has a website um, with the most comprehensive eviction data out there, um, at least on a national basis. The California data is not very good. Right. Um, but data for other states is pretty good. Right. So, so that's Eviction Lab. Eviction Lab. Yeah. I think it's evictionlab.org. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Anything else? No. Um, and let's uh, let's talk to Fernando. We're here with Fernando Nadal. He is going to tell us his story. Um, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So, start off. Why don't you tell us a little bit about um, who you are, or how long you've been in Sacramento, and uh, and what you've done. Well, my name is Fernando, as you said, and I've been here in Sacramento since '89. Moved here from the Bay Area. Um, I'm married. Uh, going to be having my 33rd anniversary on Memorial Day. Congratulations. Congratulations. Um, to my lovely little wife. <laughs> um, and and you're, you're a nurse, right? Or I'm curr- were a nurse? I was a nurse for 35 years. Um, had a heart attack in December, and I have not gone back to nursing since. And I've been volunteering uh, my wife volunteers with um, Alliance for Community Empowerment, uh, and oh, since about 2011, about eight years now. Mm-hmm. And with through her involvement, she encouraged me to uh, get involved. Um, we had uh, lost a home, and uh, and I really liked this program that they had called the Home Defenders League, helping people to modify their homes, uh, fight foreclosures, uh, and deal with um, staying in their homes and not getting evicted. Um, Something that I wish I would have had in the past. Um, But uh, through that involvement, um, and then after I got ill, I became more involved with ACE and have worked in several campaigns. And what I do is I'm in the community four to four hours a day, five days a week, knocking on doors uh, as an organizer, talking to people, finding out what their issues are. And we come to find out that we were running across so many evictions. And not only just evictions, but people's rents were getting increased uh, after they complain about getting repairs done, uh, roaches, mites, bats, rats. And so um, that became a big issue. Um, so you've um, fought on behalf of uh, people who are going through evictions or have been evicted, but you have a very personal connection to that, which is you yourself and your family um, were evicted, uh, what, two years ago? Yes. Uh, we take, were. Take us through that. 
We were residing at a community, uh, a community residential uh, retirement home for people 55 and over. And um, what we started noticing was that a lot of the renters were um, getting evicted. And um, we found it kind of odd. It's like, why are they letting people in if you're not going to, if you can't stay oh. or, you know, if you're going to get evicted? And so what we were finding out uh, in result was that uh, they were getting evicted because they can get more money. Uh, from the house, just like my situation. Uh, talk about my situation personally. Yeah. Um, I was renting a house. It was a three bedroom, two and a bath, uh, two and a half bath, two story unit, double garage, uh, nicely landscaped, and I was only paying eleven hundred and fifty dollars. And this is in Sacramento. In Sacramento. Yeah. So uh, we were we moved there in 2011, and we were there for five years with no problems basically, and then after um, after 2015 we started having problems. But one of the things that we noticed is that we had um, a new board, and for the, the condo association for the for yeah. the association mm-hmm. and. Um, a lot of them were homeowners, and um, so they were really facing out the renters. You were sharing with me a little earlier that the real problems kind of started for you when your godson passed away? Yes. Um, I don't know if you guys remember or are aware that uh, we recently had an opioid epidemic right. here in Sacramento. I think yeah. we had like 13 deaths here. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, uh, my godson um, was one of the victims. And uh, being that I was a nurse and my wife and I are pretty religious, uh, the family asked us to, you know, be there with them and support them. And so uh, because it was an opioid epidemic, the mother uh, wanted to do something about it. So we had a press conference, and uh, we decided to do it at our complex. Mm. And so we used the uh, the community room, um, and we invited uh, the news person, and they had their camera person, uh, and the reporter that came with the mother that was there, myself and my wife. Uh, and my daughter was there too. So uh, in our complex, uh, we could have six visitors and it does not require any uh, renting of the community areas. So later we found out uh, when we wanted to rent the community area for a second time, they told us that we owed money. Mm. And I'm like, what do we owe you money for? And it's like, you rented the, uh, the com- or you used the community room and had an event. And I'm like, what event? And so they couldn't tell me be- uh, what event. And I'm like, uh, well, if you're talking about when I invited, you know, these people there, we had less than six people there. So it was, it's not classified as an event. And no, I'm not going to pay the hundred and fifty dollars. And so, did you tell them about the situation itself? I mean, did you say like, 
my godson died of a yes, opioid I, overdose. I, I told him that exactly that. Yeah, okay. That's why, um, and you know, and who was there. Sure. So and so they um, they wouldn't back off the the that yeah. we needed to give them the money. And so during this whole time period, are you making your you're paying your rent on time? Correct? Yes. You haven't damaged your property at all. Correct. So, um, so then they, um, I talked to the owner, and the owner had been really happy with us because we already had been there sure. over five years and never was laid in the rent, and we took care of her place. And she says, "Well, as long as you like it, you know, I want you to stay." And so anyway, she sent an email to the owner, and. Um, or to the uh, home association. And uh, the end result was that we started receiving more complaints. Mm. Um, They started claiming that my daughter, who was uh, almost 30 years old at the time, and she drives her own Jaguar, that she was jumping the fence to get in, jumping the fence to get into the property and mm-hmm. I'm like why would she need to jump the fence when she drives a car and then they accused uh, that my dog um, attacked the neighbor and I have a pit bull and my dog um, did not attack anybody mm-hmm. and it's like I told him you know if my dog would have attacked somebody they would have been in the hospital, and my dog probably would have been euthanized. Sure. He's a pit bull. Right. They coerced the owner to give me a 60-day notice. Yeah. So yeah, so I was going to ask, all these things are piling up, and so can you talk about what the eviction process itself was actually like? Oh, well, we got the 60-day notice. Uh, after we received the notice, yeah. we went to uh, the uh, northern... Uh, California uh, Legal Services, and the uh, talked to the attorneys. Uh, we filed a complaint with uh, Federal Housing um, and Employment, mm. and um, but the attorneys told us that if we fight, we can stay and fight. But if they give us an eviction after 60 days, and then we would have an eviction on our record, and it's uh, going to be really hard for us to find a place. Uh, so they suggested that, yes, you know, go ahead and fight, but I would suggest that you move. Yeah. And our credit was challenged, yeah. uh, being that I had a heart attack uh, a couple of years before that and have been unemployed uh, or receiving disability, and my wife is disabled. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we just couldn't find a house, and God blessed us with a house on the 59th day of wow. our eviction. Tell us about your new place. It sounds like your the one you were living in was pretty nice. We what's had the, a pretty nice place, like? and yeah. for all that, we was paying $1,150 right. a month. Yeah. Now I moved into a two-bedroom, one bath, no garage uh, complex, and I'm paying... Uh, thirteen seventy five. Wow. So I'm paying a lot more for a lot less, and I'm in a neighborhood that has uh, a lot of home invasions, mm. a lot of shootings, helicopters, you know, constantly flying over, and you know, it's this high crime area, and so no, we're we're not happy, you know, where we at, and um, 
we look to uh, get into position so that you know we can be we can move out of there. Uh, what was what was the process like trying to find a, a home in that sixty day window? How stressful was that? Well, if you can imagine, I had head surgery. Um, I had major head surgery before I moved. Uh, I come to find out that the surgery solved one problem, created another problem, and then not only that. I ended up with what you call glossopharyngeal neuralgia, which uh, had like the same issue happening to the nerve that uh, controlled my swallowing, mm. my talking, and I couldn't even swallow my own saliva mm -hmm. without intense pain. Mm. So uh, how did you find a house amidst all that? My daughter uh, helped us again, and... Um, as I mentioned before, we're a very religious prop, uh, family. We prayed on it, and we, you know, had faith in God that something was going to happen. And um, I don't know if you heard of the saying that um, he may not be on time, but uh, he'll, you know, he'll get there. He's, he may be late, but even late will be on time. Hmm. And so we was really blessed to find a house on the 59th day of our 60-day notice. Hmm. So I'm curious, Fernando, given all of your experiences, how do your experiences inform what you do now when you're talking to people in the community about who are going through similar things? How does what you went through help you relate or help you connect with, with, or with the people that you, that you talk to now? I always say that it's a lot easier to connect with people if you had similar experiences um, and if you can relate or have similar stories. And that's what I tell people now when I'm out in the community and um, that everybody has a story. Uh, people that are being evicted or displaced from their homes. And each story it's important and severe to each individual. So I don't judge one story to be any better than another story. It might be more severe because of what they may be going through, but nevertheless, for each individual, it's severe to them. Mm. Um, so if I were you, I would hate this state. <laughs> that's what <laughs> that's what I'm getting at. If I had been if I had to walk away from my house and then I got evicted from um, uh, a retirement community, I, I would be it would be hard for me not to resent this state. But do you feel the, that way? Well, I'm going to tell you what I did. I uh, participated in ACE. We went to our city uh, uh, to the assembly uh, two years ago. We recognized that we was having an issue with the rent and with evictions, uh, and primarily because of Costa-Hawkins laws that was enacted. And we asked our legislatures to repeal Costa-Hawkins. It made it all the way to the committee, it never got to the floor, and it died in the committee. Um, three Democrats voted for him, one abstained, and um, four uh, Republicans voted against it. And so, henceforth, it was shut down, which, yes, I was angry. But 
what do you do with anger? You turn it into, you do something, you don't internalize it. So we went back to our pro ten, the assembly leader, and we put them on notice. You guys don't want to take care of it. We're taking it to the people and we're taking it to the streets. The end result is that we got almost 600,000 signatures to qualify the petition to be placed on the November ballot to repeal Costa Hawkins. I went to one apartment. They have like 18 evictions. All these people that are on Section 8, they just totally wiped out all the people that are that were housed there under Section 8. They all got evicted. you know. And who are these people? The elderly, the disabled, and low-income folks, you know. And so, and where are they going? To couch surfing, living in cars, and living in the streets. Mm. And some people may be lucky enough to have a family that they can go to. And so... Those, you know, uh, those are the issues that I face. When I go out to the community, I run into a, at least every two weeks, I run into at least a dozen uh, evictions. Wow. Fernando, thank you very much, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast presented by Cal Matters. Um, you can find more of my work at M. Levin Reports or on various uh, radio stations across California over the past couple weeks. If you're tired of hearing, not tired, rather, if you're not tired of hearing Matt's voice, you can hear it on your radio, radio too. It sounds better. Sounds better on NPR station. <laughs> uh, you can find more of my work uh, on Twitter at Dylan Liam, also at LATimes.com. Uh, and Matt, uh, next time we're going to be talking, it'll be after primary day. Yeah. So we will definitely cover the implications of the primary for housing in California. You can look forward to that. Um, So, uh, anything else, Liam? See you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening.